Hello, uh, hello, loyal listeners, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. Today we have episode number twenty-eight, number twenty-eight, and I'm very pleased to be sharing today's space with Dr. Z, or as she's known probably on her uh, birth certificate, uh, Dr. Patricia Zarita Ona. Uh, hopefully, I'm saying that correctly. She is uh, this month's guest. She's an expert in OCD and perfectionism and acceptance and commitment therapy. And we're going to be discussing all of those topics um, alongside her book, which you can see here. It's a, it's, it's a nice big workbook. Um, and, and also what should be obvious if you're watching the video of this episode instead of just listening to it is that this is the first time. This is the first time the Anxiety Book Club is ever doing anything you can see. So... If you're driving, pay attention to the road. But if you're sitting at home, you know, enjoy enjoy the episode. Um, so just a little bit more background about uh, Patricia or Dr. Z. She's a clinical psychologist. She works with children, adolescents, adults struggling with OCD, anxiety, and emotion regulation problems. She's the founder of the East Bay Behavior Therapy Center. And that is, uh, is that in, in San Francisco or is that um, somewhere else in the Bay? It's in the East Bay. It's in Walnut Creek. Okay, very good. And she runs an intensive outpatient program there, integrating ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, which we we know about a bit on this podcast. We've had Stephen Hayes early on in in the episode's history. Um, And she also practices, obviously, the gold standard for OCD treatment, exposure, and response prevention. Um, So thank you so much, Patricia, uh, for being here with us on the podcast. Josh, thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the work you're doing, disseminating evidence-based skills for anxiety and OCD. So I am excited to have a chance to chat with you. Yeah, and it's kind of fun with the video, you know? It is different. It adds a different flavor, absolutely. So I'm excited to see how it comes out. (laughs) Totally. So um, why don't you tell me a little bit about how you got into therapy, mental health, and, and also about obsessive compulsive disorder, how you came to become an expert and, and treater of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for that question. I think a few times I get a chance to share my background with anxiety and, and with fears and with worries. Um, but reality is that um, I travel in this life with a collection of fears. Um, I know what it means to be scared about making the wrong decision, dying young, choosing the wrong partner, uh, making poor financial uh, decisions, um, how it feels to be afraid of saying the wrong thing and making a fool of yourself. And my history with anxiety goes back to my maybe early 20s when I started having panic attacks. I had my first panic attack when I was driving in one of these beautiful roads in Bolivia, my home country, and I saw this humongous white truck coming in the other lane. And then suddenly my my mind had this image of crashing against this truck and then dying. And I saw myself just completely on the side of the road, covered in blood, and and I started hyperventilating. Mm. And what made... I think that that incident may have been like one, two minutes. For me, it felt like, you know, an eternity, like three, four hours. I literally have to pull to the road and just take a couple of deep breaths. But I was hyperventilating and it was awful. And that was the beginning of having this fear of dying young. And, Mm. you know, through different times in my life, when I'm driving on the freeway, if I see a humongous truck, 
naturally my body remembers and I'm holding onto the wheel like really, really hard. Sometimes I hyperventilate more than other times, right? Um, it's not a fear that is blocking my life right now. However, it was the beginning of a full-blown panic attacks. And through different times, I had panic attacks at different in different situations in my life. Um, I am an immigrant. I have English as my second language. So at the beginning, when I came to this country in 2001, I also was petrified about talking in English. I was so scared. My mind was telling me that no one will understand what I am saying, which still happens, by the way, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I can understand everything. So You're very kind. Um, I was scared about doing therapy in English. Um, so I think, again, my experience, my personal experience with anxiety, it's really a historical one in my life. In a larger context, I was born in the midst of a dictatorship in Bolivia. My country had three long military regiments. And I was born in the middle of one. So even though I didn't witness violence firsthand, um, I was born at a time in which there was an exchange of political prisoners when people couldn't be couldn't have like large gatherings after 10 p.m. When after 8 p.m. only three people can be walking on the road, right? So mm. I know in a larger scale also what means to be part of a country when you're shaped by fear. On an individual level, again, I had my own direct first-hand experience with all types of fears, worries, and unwanted thoughts. Um, so I think over the years, I always knew that I wanted to, to coach people or, or really do some therapy work on the way that fear and anxiety doesn't block a person's life because I experienced that very closely within my own family in my life, how many times I had to overcome my own fears and dance with them and wrestle with them to do the things that I want to do. So with time, I think therapy became the way for me to do that, to help people to get unstuck and to guide them to be who they want to be and to build the lives they want to have. And that's how I also landed into acceptance and commitment therapy in the last, I don't know, like 17, 18 years, which has been extremely impactful in my life. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for the introduction. And I think you've highlighted something that will be a good segue for us. So you you mentioned that sometimes you'll be driving on the highway and you'll see a big truck and Sometimes you'll have to take a deep breath or maybe squeeze the steering wheel a little bit tighter, but, but it doesn't keep you, I, I guess, from driving to your appointments or getting your haircut or, you know, picking up your dog or whatever your life requires. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess that's sort of an important distinction, right? So if you have a, a fear disorder or an anxiety disorder, um, maybe you wouldn't go see a therapist unless it's um, preventing you from you know, reaching your goals or do you want to say anything about that? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for capturing that. I think, I don't think that it is a human experience to be afraid. It is human to be anxious. That is not necessarily a sign that something is wrong with us or that we're broken. I think as long as we're breathing, we are going to have some form of fear in some way, in some color, in some shape. The challenge is that fear always comes with an avoidance response. Fear always pushes us to stop doing something, to run away as quick as possible. Um, And if we act on the fear quickly without checking how it's working in our life, then we get stuck. Um, For example, right, this incident of having a panic attack on the freeway when I'm driving, 
I don't like it. I hate having panic attacks. I hate when I start hyperventilating. I just don't like it at all. Um, but as you were saying, it doesn't affect my day-to-day life. Um, it's something that um, I still, you know, I take a deep breath and I drive, I keep driving. I make sure I keep my eyes open, no clothes, right? Uh, but it will be different if I have a panic attack when I'm having this conversation with you. And after this, I say, I'm not going to have any other interview. I am going mm-hmm. to stop teaching. I'm not going to give any public presentation ever because I had this experience. Then I am acting so quickly on this fear of having a panic sensation that is affecting my life and it's affecting my values, right? A big value in my life is to disseminate and spread the words of active skills for any person dealing with anxiety. But if I act on the fear and affects how I want to live my life, then it becomes a problem. So I think it's a very important distinction. To be afraid is to be human. But if I act quickly on the fear and I don't check how it's working in that relationship with myself, in that relationship with others, in my career, in my spiritual life, then that's when it could become a problem. Totally. Yeah. I think it's a it's a good distinction. Um, and it's it's good to make room for, I guess they call it neurodiversity, you know, we have all kinds of different brains and all kinds of different minds. And, you know, one person, you know, maybe there's people out there who are too afraid to fly. And so they don't fly, but maybe they don't need to fly, you know, so we should make room for, you know, whatever kinds of experiences. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that whenever I think about it, it's like, like height. Some people, you know, have much more height and taller than others, mm-hmm. right? Some people have this petite size that I have, right? So I think our experience of fear is also very diverse and very different for each one of us. Uh, and again, makes a difference in life to acknowledge that is part of our common experience, that is part of being a human being versus looking at fear, anxiety, and worries as something that I have to get rid of, as something that I have to just suppress or try to replace with a positive thought. That's where the problems start with anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you keep saying things that are, are, are making me uh, spark some, some lines of, of re-questioning in my head. So this, uh, the idea of the positive thinking, I've heard that before. I've heard it from family members. Be optimistic, focus on the positive. If something bad happens, like think about what's good. Is there a, what's, what's wrong with that? Because it sounds on the face of it like a, a, a decent plan. But it sounds like maybe, at least perhaps for people with obsessive compulsive disorder, there could be a trap here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have a lot to say about it. So I will do my best to summarize my response. Um, and of course, my opinion is biased because I am I am big in behavioral science and what effective science shows us these days. And I think in the 80s and in the 90s, there was this explosion of all types of books, self-help books, focus on think positive, be happy, smile a lot, right? And and somehow the whole industrial self-help books was really focused on be happy and think positively. And the challenge with that is that we thought that it works, right? For 20 years and longer mm-hmm. than that, we thought that that's the way to go to handle our fears. But let's just step back a little bit and let's see how it works and what we know about it these days. The classic example you may have uh, here within the ACT community is that if we ask any person, I can ask you right now, to be as happy as possible, 
could you bring that emotional state right now in this conversation? I yeah I, I so I understand the question. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting to ask me because I'm very skeptical of our ability to really even create any thoughts. But I I, I have been doing a little bit of uh, compassion training lately, so I can kind of bring to mind like I think about this dog I used to walk that was very friendly, mm-hmm. <laughs> and when I do that, I can conjure some feelings of pleasantness uh and warmth but but i i I think i hear what you're saying yeah but you're making an important point because sometimes in compassion focus training we can imagine or bring a picture into our mind of something that can be soothing right um so i think in some way we can cope with some emotional states by doing you know that type of imagery work However, when we're thinking about inducing a strictly emotional states like be happy, right, or be excited, or be grateful in the context of replacing negative feelings I have, in the context of suppressing any yucky feeling or yucky thought I'm having, that's a different context. And if you look back at the books from the 80s and 90s, the message was very clear. If you're having a panic sensation, if you're feeling down about yourself, Think about something positive. Think how good you are. List all the positive qualities you do have. So we were basically teaching people that every time you feel down, you have to suppress or replace the thought mm. with something positive. And that's what these days we know that suppression doesn't work. We can try sometimes to imagine, I think, nice, soothing emotional states, or we can use imagery for that, or we can remember someone tender in our life and someone caring. But if it's done in the context of suppressing my emotional state, that's where it becomes a problem. And the literature for the 80s and in the 90s was really focused on that. Now, going, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. um, Yeah, it's funny on video, no one would have ever seen me (laughs) look like I had a thought. But yeah, I did have a thought. Yeah, it's a a good distinction. So the the, the difference is, so let's say I, um, I find out that, um, I didn't get a job that I applied for, and I'm I'm feeling unhappy and, and sad about. So so maybe this whole industry of of self help books from the 80s or 90s would have encouraged me, and correct me if I'm wrong, to try to replace my unhappy thoughts, my thoughts of failure or disappointment uh, or self loathing, with something happy like oh, um, you know. I I have a birthday party tonight and that's going to be really fun. So forget about this job thing. There's a million others and, you know, your hair looks really good today. Um, versus, versus, I guess, the sort of compassion stuff, which is more like taking seriously mm-hmm. your disappointment. I'm making room for it, right? And say, I am hurting right now. Um, right. This is really challenging. And what's the kind thing I can do for myself? Mm -hmm. How will my best friend talk to me right now, right? Uh, So I think that suppression from the 80s, from the 90s, and again, I have this biased opinion, would be like, I had other jobs. Um, I know I am smart. I know I can get another job. I know I can apply for another interview. Um, I have a good resume. I have five levels of recommendation, really trying to, reduce the discomfort that I have because I didn't get a job. 
which is mm. tricky business, right? Because even if it works in the short term, quite likely our sense of fear, of that fears of being a failure, that the fears of not getting the ideal job, they're going to pop up because that's just what we are wired to experience. Um, so I think, let me just, um, I think, clarify this. It's very important. Um, if I'm walking on the streets, let's say I'm just walking and I'm blah, 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 and then my mind has a thought about how good it was when I had a job with my mentor and how much I enjoyed working with him and how much I learned about psychology and therapy and about act with him in my conversations with him. That's a positive thought and how competent I may feel because of that experience. Super cool. But it's not coming in the context of replacing a negative state or replacing a negative thought. So I can run, my mind can randomly bring back, bring to my present these super cool experiences I have and I may experience a sense of confidence about myself. But it's very different if I quickly go into that place because I am not feeling okay, because my mind tells me I'm not a good psychologist, because my mind tells me I'm not good enough and I have to quickly list my positive qualities and how good I am. I may even go out of my way to text my best friend and say, you know that I'm good at my work, right? Mm. And you tell me the things I am good at, right? So that's a difference between sometimes thinking about positive stuff about ourselves, life and others, versus thinking positively about myself, my achievements, my successes to replace in a negative thought. So that's a thing where in the 80s and 90s, I think we missed that, that distinction. Totally, totally. And I think that makes sense. And you mentioned reassurance, which I want to get to in a second. But I want to ask one more question about yeah. this topic because it's interesting, I think. It's also interesting to think about, you know, science and how science changes. And, uh, you know, there's some people out there who have a lot of faith in science, especially, you know, people who've gotten vaccinated. And then there's other people out there who have less faith in it. So, and, and I don't expect you to know the answer to this question, but it's, it's an interesting one to ponder. Were, were the people writing these books in the 80s and 90s about positive thinking, were they doing, you know, randomized controlled trials and providing uh, evidence and data and, and big enough sample sizes? And, and then all of a sudden, a new wave of scientists came in and couldn't replicate their studies? Or was it just pop psychological authors writing what they thought worked. I, and, and again, I don't expect you to know the answer to this question, but do you happen to know um, how it became discovered that that's wrong and, 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 and how like the old conventional wisdom kind of got replaced with these new ideas? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a very, it's a super cool question, Josh. And I don't think I have a big response, but I can tell you what I know. Um, I think it's important to understand that science evolves in a historical context, and it's also in response to what we're living in a given historical time. Um, I didn't grow up in this country, right? But certainly in the 80s and 90s seem to be characterized by this re-immersion of trying to um, get out of a really maybe tough time that this country went through as a group, as a society, and they try to re-encounter themselves through being happy, through happiness, right? This happiness quest. Um, so I think the 60s and 70s, there was a huge revolution questioning the system, questioning the political system and restructuring the roles of men and women and restructure gender equality and human rights. Um, and we have all these movements with S, people were trying to go back to the roots of what it means to be a human being, right? 
So I think the 80s and the 90s were part of that were part of that evolution, that social evolution in terms of what really speaks to us. And we idealize and fantasize with this state of happiness. We romanticize about being happy 24 hours, seven days a week. Mm. So I think it's part of that context, but I don't have the truth with capital T. I think what we have is this explosion of really going back to what means to be a human being. If it's not about having a lot of things, it's not about having these hierarchical roles of what means to be men and women and gender fluidity, right? So what does it mean? And the challenge is that perhaps at the time in the 80s and 90s, we were doing primarily, at least in behavioral science, research that was focused on packages of interventions. We didn't do studies that were breaking down these components and looking from this treatment package that has four components. Component B is the one that has larger impact. We were saying this model works because we test this as a model. Then I think later on in the 2000s, that's when we actually start dismantling these studies and looking at which one of these components has larger impact. Is component A, B, C, or D? So I think the way that we were thinking of science, in behavioral science at least, also shifted. And that's how we realized that something is off here, right? Because we cannot replicate some of the findings from the 80s and 90s. Um, So I think there is that. The other aspect is that I I I don't know the percentage uh, of this, but I think some of the books, um, self-help books written in the 80s and 90s from positive psychology were really based more on anecdotal experiences. They yeah. didn't have a lot of research background, right? It was just really, this worked for me. I think it should work for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then people had these huge marketing companies, right, disseminating a lot and having this extraordinary branding. And then some ideas became very popular. Um, so I think... Uh, Psychologists will have to do a better job at branding science, at making behavioral science accessible, right? Because it's beyond just an individual experience. It's beyond an anecdotal experience. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, pop culture is is sort of late to catch up to a lot of the this stuff. Of course, we know that when obsessive-compulsive disorder is uh, portrayed in the media, in movies and stuff, it's rarely... It's rarely portrayed in an accurate way, or at least in a way that resonates beyond just a single person with OCD's experience. Um, yeah, yeah, you're tapping into something important. I think the challenge is that with these models of um, being happy 24 hours, seven days a week, we also have created this artificial division between people who has a mental health struggle and people that don't. Right. And, and I think a lot of the social media in some way in the past was perpetuating this dichotomy. Um, and I think in that sense, acceptance and commitment therapy is extremely revolutionary and it's a counter movement. We're looking at human suffering as a continuum in which there is not either or whether you have a disorder or not. It's, it's something more like at some point in our life, we all are going to have panic attacks. We all are going to have fears of public speaking. We're all going to experience obsessions, right? So I think, to me, that has been one of the most um, impactful models to look at reality, to understand myself. And that, I think, in my life and in my work has been extremely impactful, certainly. Sure. Well, now that we've sort of mentioned a few of these uh, terms, and, and, you know, for people who have listened to other episodes of the podcast or have done their own research, they might 
already be pretty well acquainted, but let's talk a little bit just what is OCD and what is acceptance and commitment therapy, if, if you don't mind. Yeah, no, no, no. Happy to just dive into that. Um, so acceptance and commitment therapy is what we call a third wave therapy. It's an evidence-based approach. It's a research-based approach. We have over 800 randomized clinical trials that have shown how effective it is for many, many psychological struggles, anxiety, depression, eating disorders, substance abuse. Uh, it has also shown to be effective in educational systems, in leadership training, in communication training, in sports performance. So the applications of ACT, not only to the therapy room, but to other levels of performance have been already well documented. Um, in a nutshell, ACT invites all of us to make room to accept all the uncomfortable experiences that come when we are doing what matters. And it's a very, it's a therapy approach in which we invite every person to identify what really matters to them, what it speaks to them, what they want their life to be about, and to take steps towards those values. And mm -hmm. again, as I say moments ago, every time we're doing what matters, there is going to be some form of discomfort. And instead of replacing or suppressing that discomfort, within ACT, we invite people to make room for that, to notice how it feels, to notice what you're sensing, and to choose how you want to relate to that struggle. Uh, we may ask always the question, given that in this moment, your mind is telling you that you're not good enough, your mind is telling you that no one is going to watch this YouTube video, how do you want to relate to that? What's really important to you in this moment? And I think for those of you who are familiar with ACT, for people who are interested in ACT, it does make a difference when we can pause and really ask ourselves, who do I want to be in this moment? How, what's really, really important to me? How do I want to relate to this situation right now? Versus automatically doing what my mind tells me to do or what my feelings tell me to do, right? So that's sure. the short version of ACT. I think that's a a terrific description and and also just a really helpful reminder i know i know in my own life and and this the example of this podcast is a great example so you know when when you're engaged in something that you consider to be important depending on the kind of mind that you have your mind might create thoughts about um doubt or um imperfection that might cause you to become distracted um, and I know that that has happened to me in my own life. And if you, if one of your values, at least I could say for myself, one of my values is to connect with others, mm -hmm. you know, is to connect with others and create community community and, you know, do a, a decent job at creating something that might help people that suddenly becomes more important than whatever critical voices I might be experiencing. Oh, am I saying something dumb? Um, maybe I should have edited the bikes out of this video, you know, like, um, I, I really like the idea of values as a sort of kind of compass, mm -hmm. uh, or guiding principle to help you, to help you realize what's more important. I, I think the only and let's talk about this because I think it's interesting. I think the the two things that can be hard with the value stuff is one, not making the value stuff a compulsion itself. Sure. Um, and the second one is, 
and and we should talk about this when you have a, when you're having anxiety levels maybe not panic attack levels but but levels like 7 8 and 9 how do you make space how do you make room for the values when you're just so disturbed yeah. in the moment yeah yeah thank you for asking that i think um you see i think we haven't been socialized we haven't been taught how to make room for our discomfort, right? So when we are experiencing like anxiety level seven, eight, when you have butterflies in your stomach, maybe hyperventilating a little bit, and there is a laundry list of facts telling you this is going to be really bad, terribly bad. The most common response is to get out of that experience, to think positive, um, to say, I'm sorry, I can't be here. I need to get out, right? Um, but within ACT, we invite you to actually perhaps take a deep breath, ground yourself a little bit, maybe press your feet really hard against the floor. And then really that sentence part looks like describing what you're sensing or what you're feeling. I may say things like, like, I'm having butterflies in my stomach. I'm noticing there is a wave of heat coming into my body. I'm noticing there's a strong urge to get out of this situation. Uh, what is beautiful here is that every time you acknowledge what you're feeling, what you're sensing, and what your mind is doing, that actually helps the brain to slow down a little bit. Because you're simply describing what's happening without doing anything. You're watching this internal experience. So that, that, that skill, by nature, will help the brain to slow down a little bit. Now, this is not a magic pill that happens from one second to another second. It takes a lot of coaching yourself and a lot of really practicing and practicing, right? Active skills are not magic skills. Like any skill, you have to train yourself. Musicians rehearse for a concert. Um, bikers, they are riding, you know, like 100 miles a week to actually perform, right? So with active skills, it's the same, right? The more that you make room and you really try these tiny skills, like, Tell yourself what you're feeling, what you're sensing. Watch the experience. You're going to coach your brain to step back a little bit. And then you may ask yourself, what's important to me? Um, it seems like a very simple, easy question. But in the midst of anxiety, of course, it's a hard choice. It's a hard choice between running away from what you're struggling with and doing what matters. Uh, and we're going to make all types of choices. We don't have to make the perfect choice. We're human beings. We're not always going to choose our values. Sometimes anxiety may take over. But every time I ask myself, what's important to me in this conversation? How do I want to show up to this in this moment? I am building my capacity to choose. And the more I do that, the more second nature is going to be. So just summarizing a little bit, it's important to just, if you're having high levels of anxiety and it feels like this is too overwhelming, that you cannot handle it, take a deep breath, try to do some grounding. Use your body as a way of getting out of your mind and bring yourself back to the present. The more so, you do that, the more it's helping your mind. Mm -hmm. So uh, these all sound like terrific exercises. And who knows, uh, the person listening to this may or may not be having an anxious moment. So maybe we can together just do a little grounding exercise. Would you lead us in one? I would love it. I would love it. Absolutely. That would be okay. super fun. My goodness. So I'm just going to invite you, Josh, for a couple of moments to take a deep breath. Let's do this together. And make sure your back is straight, not necessarily tight. 
When you feel comfortable, you can close your eyes for a couple of moments. And I'm going to invite you to press your feet really hard against the floor. And just notice how it feels to be doing that. If there is any thought coming into your mind, you can simply say thought. Just go back again to pay attention to this sensation of pressing your feet hard against the floor. You can roll your shoulders towards the back a little bit. Let's take another deep breath. You can even balance your body a little bit from the left to the right from the front to the back. And I'm going to invite you now to open your eyes if you haven't closed and just look around and maybe describe four things you see right now, four things that call your attention. Tree, desk, uh, plant, tea, I want to invite you to take another, another deep breath. Press again your feet against the floor for a couple of moments. Notice again what happens in your body when you're pressing your feet. Notice if there is any tension showing up in your legs. And I'm going to invite you now once again to open your eyes. And perhaps describe three things you hear, three different sounds. Yeah, I hear your voice. Um, I think I hear the air conditioning. <laughs> and uh, the refrigerator also. Okay. okay, let's do a little bit one more round. I'm going to invite you once again, if you feel comfortable, to close your eyes. Press your feet against the hard floor. You can roll your shoulders a little bit. Notice how it feels to be rolling the shoulders. And I'm going to invite you now to bring yourself back. Open your eyes if you haven't closed and maybe describe one smell in the room. It doesn't smell so much right now, but I, I can smell the clean, the clean air in my apartment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If we can step back a little bit, um, if it's okay to pause, can I ask you how was for you to do this tiny grounding exercise with me? It was wonderful. Um, I wish that they did this during every meeting at work, you know? Um, yeah, and it sounds like, it seems like you're an expert because you did a great job of, of leading us through this. You're very kind. Um, how, do, how do, you know, it, like you said, it's training, right? Like how, we, I, I don't want to, you know, I, we don't want to add more to-dos to people's lists of things that they have to do in a day. People are already way too busy and way too stressed and they know they're supposed to, you know, do the yoga and the meditation, they eat right, sleep well, 
yeah. um, have a job with purpose, you know, how, how do we, how do we make it easy uh, for people to include exercises like this yeah. in their lives when, when things are hard? Yeah, thank you for asking that. I think um, it's a great question for psychologists because you're right. Sometimes we want everyone to have like two hours of meditation, one retreat, you know, once a month. Um, here's what I can tell you. And I'm big. I'm a big proponent of using the active skills on the go as you move through your day. Um, when people, when we are feeling anxious and the mind keeps going on and on, on having a lot of body noise, right? It's in those moments that the most important thing is to pause and to make room for that without sinking with that experience. How will that look? You can literally just take a deep breath. You may want to um, place your hand on your stomach. Take a deep breath. Notice how it feels. That's less than five minutes. You can also press your feet really hard against the floor. Notice the tension. And you can focus on the person you're talking to. You may want to look at their lips when they're moving. You may want to look into their eyes. But the idea here is to get out of your mind, use your body as a way to connect back with the present. Um, This is something I do throughout my day. When things get rocky, when things are challenging, when I receive bad news and I notice that my mind is taking off, or suddenly I have these gloom and doom thoughts about how things are going to be bad, that's a moment to actually ground ourselves. We don't need to have one hour of meditation in that moment. That would be ideal. But it's not, no, no, no. We don't have a chance to do that all the time, right? But we do have a chance to simply take a deep breath, place your hand in your stomach, press your feet, balance your body a little bit. Movement sometimes helps us to bring ourselves back, right? And then try to focus again on what is in front of you. We may have to do this every 25 minutes, every hour, but as long as we do that, when we are moving through our day, it does get better. So we mm-hmm. don't, you know, it would be great to have like one hour of mindfulness every single day, but that's really hard for a lot of us. Um, we have a lot of errands to do and relationships and cooking and laundry. But if we can catch these moments of stuckness and we can try, try these micro skills, it does get more manageable. It may not be perfect. It's not going to be pain-free. But it does help us to bring ourselves back in the present so we can choose better the next 10 minutes, within the next 15 minutes. So that would be one way of doing them. Totally. Yeah, thank you for that. That was that was wonderful. And it sounds like at least in your life and perhaps in many of the lives of your clients, you've been able to make it into a habit. Um, something yeah. so that when the doom and gloom happens, you know, the grounding exercise also suggests itself as a possibility. Yeah, I think if I can add to that, I know at the beginning, um, at the beginning when I'm working with my clients, um, I get a lot of skepticism, a lot of like, oh my gosh, that's too hippy-dippy, right? Is it really going to work? And, And it does make sense to have those doubts. It does make sense to question because when we are struggling, of course we want to have quick fixes. Of course, we want to have something that will work right now and right here. That's just what the mind does. But I also know that building a life skill takes time and it's a process. I have experienced that in my own life. I have seen with my clients. Um, so I'm not saying anybody that it's going to be easy peasy, that this is the solution. 
But what I'm inviting people is give yourself a chance to see how this skill works in the long term. None of these skills is going to make your pain go away, but it's going to help you to anchor yourself so you can handle the moment effectively and as you want to be. So I think it is natural to sometimes be skeptical of these act skills. I will expect that. But I also know that in the long term, they can be extremely impactful in our lives. But we just have to try them, be curious about them, try them with flexibility and without any agenda to be less anxious, to be less afraid, to be less worried. The task is let's ground ourselves and see what happens. See how I handle the next 10 minutes, how I handle the next 15 minutes. So that mindset also helps with looking at how these skills can be impactful in the long term. Totally, totally. And I have heard that before about how um, when you're doing like a mindfulness exercise or a grounding exercise, you should try to do it without a goal in mind, you know, without having the reduction of anxiety in mind. Um, why, why is that important to not um, insist upon these uh, small practices being effective? Why is it important to sort of just do the practices for their own sake and, and perhaps not, uh, I mean, I think I know the answer, but not, not prepare yourself to be upset when uh, your anxiety doesn't magically disappear. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, you're asking great, great questions. I love them. I have two responses. The first one is that there are things that we learn by thinking and thinking, and there are things that we learn by experience. Uh, most of the times, our mind is going to try to create an experience, but it's very different than having the experience. Talking about, for example, talking about Bolivia, my home country, is one thing. You may have watched documentaries about Bolivia. You may have read books about Bolivia. But it's very different to be in Bolivia and breathe this hot, humid air and to walk in the mountains, right? There is experiential knowledge that teaches us something. So within app, there is learning by thinking and there is learning by having the experience. So talking about grounding and using micro skills is very different when you have experience and you're really curious about them. So that's one thing, to have experiential knowledge. But the other aspect is that let's expect that all of us, when we are hurting, we do want to put a band-aid. We want our pain to go away. And that makes sense. It's human. The challenge is that we do all types of things to minimize our pain. I avoid, I drink a scotch every night. I don't take an elevator if I'm afraid of elevators. I don't participate in a podcast interview if I'm making, uh, if I'm afraid of making a fool of myself. All those bandits, they work. But then I ended up with a life that gets narrow and narrow. So if I use these micro skills with the agenda of getting rid of my struggle, which makes sense, I'm actually not living the life that I want to live. So that's where the thing is important. Try them and see how they go without attachment to any particular outcome. And also, we don't have control of the outcome. I do not know the next minute I'm going to feel more anxious or less anxious, more afraid or less afraid. Emotions happen to us, but I do have control of how I want to handle that particular moment. It seems like... You know, and I've been thinking about these kinds of topics for a little bit now. Mm-hmm. It seems like some of these um, nuggets or some of these teachings or, or these, um, I, I guess you could call it, some of these wisdom 
um, ideas. I feel like they should be a part of basic education yeah. for for really anyone with a mind, uh, which is everyone. We should all be learning just a little bit about how to soothe ourselves, um, what it what it means to have a thought uh, or a feeling or an emotion, um, grounding exercises like. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but sh- where where should this where do you think ideally this should appear? Should it be in elementary school or like how do how does this work yeah. so that we don't all have to spend you know years suffering, eventually wind up in therapy or it's a mindfulness retreat, and then learn this you know several decades into life? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think to me, after skills and life skills. Every human being should be learning them. And there are some people, there are some of these committees within the art community that are bringing art into educational systems. They are training teachers in the art model. They are trying to bring a curriculum of art skills for them in elementary school. So I think there are attempts that people are doing within the art community. But I personally think that we always need so much more. The idea of paying attention to our well-being and build that from the moment we're born to me, that's the way to go. I think we all should be learning these art skills, and I wish we will have the resources to do so. Um, otherwise, you're right. I think I don't remember my mom ever telling my dad ever telling me, Patricia, this is how you handle anxiety. This mm. is you know what you can do when you're having a panic sensation. Never, right? My goodness, for the training um, and, and for therapy and for coaching, right? But. Imagine how different will it be if we know these skills since the beginning, since we're five, six years old. If we can make room for our feelings without criticizing ourselves, we make room for our not good enough stories, right? Without judging ourselves, we're quite different, right? Yeah, I would, <laughs> I would hope that there would still be jobs out there for therapists. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. You know, life doesn't stop bringing us some moments of stuckness. <laughs> To be alive is to have a lot of problems sometimes of all sizes and colors. <laughs> totally, totally. Uh, this has been a really fun conversation. We didn't spend that much time on the book. Uh, we've mostly been having this really organic conversation, which I really appreciate. But, um, you know, if someone listening to this has gotten interested in ACT, in acceptance and commitment therapy, um, and and maybe struggles with anxiety or or i think you also mentioned that act has been shown to be useful for depression mm-hmm. um how, how would you recommend they start their journey wow that's a great question i think um the main recommendation will go to the website the contextual behavioral science.org website okay uh, there is one particular channel for the public and it's a beautiful forum it's very active people can post all types of questions about anxieties worries depression sports performance um, it's a very engaged community so that would be the first uh, place and also in this website they do have a list of the art publications if people are looking for uh, self-help books that have been written by people from the community they can also find them there um, but I think that will be the, the first step, the Contextual Behavior Science website. 
Got it. And that's your website, right? Um, no, that is the website of the ACT community. Ah, okay. National cool. website. Yeah, yeah. No, my work is primarily focused on the application of ACT skills to fear-based struggles, right? For people who are super feelers, dealing with OCD or anxiety or perfectionists. Uh, but I think a good beginning uh, starting point is really going to the ACT community. It's a very mm -hmm. vibrant community, very welcome, and the forum for the public is very active. Got it. Yeah, and I can send you the link. It's contextualbehaviorscience.org. I think that's a great starting point. I will be sure to put that in the show notes. Yeah, we, we didn't really get a chance to talk at all about how uh, ACT applies to perfectionism or OCD, uh, but perhaps we, we should have another episode at some point to, to do that. I would um, love to, but this was, this was really rich and very organic. I, I really appreciate your questions a lot because I think sometimes people like myself who have drink the Kool-Aid of ACT, we assume that everything is out there, right? But it's actually it's beautiful to slow down and step back and see, okay, now how does this really works in that person's day-to-day -day life? So I'm super grateful for your questions. Sure, and it, it helps to have an expert on because when you have an expert, not someone who's just you know read the ACT book, but who's worked with clients day in and day out, they can answer these questions. You yeah. know, so it's it's a it's an opportunity for me and for this audience as well, um, because they're going to have these same skeptical questions, yeah. you know, so to be able to hear a, a really smart and thoughtful response from you is, is very valuable. That's very kind of you. That's very kind of you. It's blushing time for me right now. <laughs> good. That's good. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, Patricia, Dr. Z, thank you so much for being on the podcast um, I'll just ask you, uh, where can um, listeners find out more information about you or forthcoming books or projects you're working on and anything really at all that you'd like to highlight? Well, thank you, Josh. Um, I, among the social media platforms, I love Twitter. It's like 140 characters or 280 characters. I forgot, but it's less flashy. And I think my handle is Dr. Z Behaviorist. I am there and I can send you the link too. And then I have a website that is called thisisdrz.com. And that's usually what I'm listing my upcoming books um, and some of the webinars I'm doing. Um, that will be also a good place to start. Um, but again, I think if people are interested in how to apply ACT for worry anxieties, that's what I'm creating a lot of content. My newsletter is exclusively focused on that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for the work that you're doing. You're very kind. Thank you so much to you. And my goodness, um, I'm so grateful that you can disseminate all these skills. Thank you. Totally.